You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. And now I will read our scripture for this morning, which is in Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, And as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, his hand is stretched out still." He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle from the, for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. 
None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, their bows bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey, they carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. For those of you who don't know me well, my name is Trent, and I serve Cormdale as a pastoral assistant. The elders that Nick just prayed for have given me both the privilege and the challenge of preaching the words of Isaiah 5 to you this morning. So let's talk about sin. It's not as if the last few weeks haven't been full of confrontation or anything in the first few chapters of Isaiah. So we're going to dive right back into it again this morning. But this is an unfamiliar territory to us, right? If you've noticed, each week as we gather together for worship, we talk about sin. It's something that's present every time that we gather. As David read in our confession and absolution, right? It's the mercy of God that gives us confidence to draw near to him so we can actually speak of and talk about sin. And that's what we need to do this morning. Now you may have heard it said that God's not surprised by your sin. God knows you. He loves you. He understands and and knows your past, present, and future sins. He cares for you deeply and understands exactly what you're going through. He's not surprised by your sin. But what if God is surprised by your sin? Isaiah wants us to wrestle with how we perceive sin and grace this morning. What if to God, our sin is something completely unexpected? Let me sing a love song for my vineyard, for my beloved, Isaiah starts in chapter 5. My love song concerning his vineyard. Songs are great, aren't they? We sing them here as we gather. They have this special ability to connect us emotionally and even almost senses to a particular memory or situation. When I was growing up, my dad and I listened to the Beatles a lot. And so now every time that I hear the Beatles, I can almost smell sawdust. It's weird. There's like this link in my head because all the time that we listen to the Beatles, we would work on projects on the house, finish a couple basements, and sawdust was always in the air. Maybe for some of you, it's you hear a song and you remember a great road trip that you went on. You hear a song and it's your first dance as bride and groom. You hear another song and it's the first time that you fell in love or the time that you had great fun in college. Songs have this ability to connect us to certain things. This last week, I was driving in the car with my wife, and we heard this song, and both of us immediately remembered a single date that we had in high school where the end of that date, I kissed her in the middle of that song. And it created this expectation. I was like, we're listening to it, and I want to kiss her again. It's, you know, it's, it's, that's the way that songs work. They create expectations and connect us to certain things. And that's what Isaiah is doing. He's trying to connect his audience. He's trying to connect the people of Israel to what they expect. Let's read on. My beloved had a vineyard, 
on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the, mid- in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. For what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? This love song, as it starts out, is turning south almost into a lament. The Hebrew word asa means to make or to do, and it's repeated seven times in this passage. Or maybe you can just look at the action verbs and see that that the vineyard owner has dug, cleared, planted, built, hewed out. He has done everything possible to ensure the fruitfulness of his vineyard. He's been incredibly gracious and good to the land that it might produce fruit. The people of Israel would have known this. Their land was actually fertile for growing wine, growing grapes that would produce wine. They knew this kind of agricultural metaphor. And so they're almost with Isaiah here. You can see them going, you're right. It should yield fruit. So when Isaiah asked them to judge between the owner and his vineyard, you can almost hear them saying, down with the vineyard. The owner has done everything. And now I will tell you what I'll do with my vineyard in verse 5. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. Its briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. The verdict of this court case, the owner or the vineyard, is that the vineyard will be removed. The vineyard will be done away with. The people would have agreed with this. Of course they would, right? They know what it means to work hard in the land and to long for it to produce crop. This is what they lived by. But Isaiah here is baiting a prophetic hook that he's about to pull. His love song is turning into a parable. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the people of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. It's for in them, his people, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, that he looked for and longed for fruitfulness. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, outcry. Those two words are so similar. It's almost like he looked for something, but found the counterfeit. That's what's going on here. This parable has a hook to it. And its simple lesson is this. Grace should lead to fruitfulness. Grace should lead to fruitfulness. God has been incredibly gracious with his people. He's been very good to this land, just as the vineyard owner has. He's done everything conceivably that, sh- that would be needed to produce great fruit. And yet there's no fruitfulness in the land. There's no fruitfulness among his people. It's as if he's looking. The word here is he's expectantly waiting, longing for fruit to come. But instead of grapes, wild grapes come. Another translation calls this bad fruit or stink fruit comes 
instead of good and delicious fruit. Grace should lead to fruitfulness. Now there are a myriad of questions about fruit and growth and change that have great answers in the scriptures and that you might have questions about this morning, but Isaiah doesn't really consider them, and so we're not going to consider them this morning. Instead, what Isaiah does is he begins to hold up six clusters of rotten fruit, six clusters of grapes that are the bad fruit of his people. And instead of letting us ask questions about the fruit and trying to figure out what's going on, he begins to ask questions to us. The rest of the chapter, as you heard read by Nick, is a series of woes. And so I just encourage you, whether you're ready or not, buckle up, because we're going to go through six woes, and then we'll try and head home, okay? Here we go. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing. That's, it's ringing in my ears. Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephath. The agricultural metaphor continues here as Isaiah confronts greed. Ray Ortland says that greed disempowers grace and dissolves it into emptiness. Greed is that thing that says, I need more, I want more, I must have more. But then when it gets more, it's never actually satisfied. This is so relevant to us in our day because the same thing that was happening in Isaiah's day, that house was being added to house, is true for us. The rich are only getting richer. How easy is it for us to expect upward mobility. We expect a raise, a promotion, a better job. We expect a bigger house, a nicer car, more clothes. We expect more, more, more. Do you understand how hard it is to climb out of poverty? My in-laws have been mentoring and discipling a young woman and her family for over a decade now. And it's still on the rocks as to whether her and her family is going to escape generational poverty because of how hard it is to live in this country. Yet we continue to say more. And the problem with saying more in greed is that it demands things and and makes us think we deserve things that we have never merited. Greed is opposed to grace. God had graciously given the people of Israel the land. He had cleared out their enemies. He had set them up and said, here is your allotted portion. This is your inheritance. Steward it well. They were supposed to have this land not to take over other people's land. They were supposed to have the land allotted to them as a sign of God's justice, as a a symbol of his equity and fairness to to his own people, Israel, and to all of the nations surrounding them. They were to be very different. They had come out of slavery and oppression, and they were to become a nation where fairness and justice reigned. Woe number two. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after green drink. Oh, sorry, strong drink. 
who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. I love that we get to talk about drunkenness on the eve of St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) We should just call that divine providence or something, right? In all seriousness, though, this is familiar to us as well. For many of you, this was your lifestyle in college. You knew, the, you knew the party lifestyle. You knew drink well. You were familiar with drunkenness. For some of you, this is still your day in, day out, week in, week out experience now. Others of you may have moved on to maybe a more sophisticated form of overconsumption. Isaiah is driving here deep into our hearts, right? Isaiah wants us to see that what animates us, what inflames us, what gives us passion is really important. Because if we are filled with something else besides God, we can't receive grace. Grace is given and is received only by those who know their emptiness, not by those who are full. Overconsumption is opposed to grace. True grace comes as we remember the deeds of the Lord, as we know the work of his hands, as we are filled and our thoughts and our actions are filled with the work of his hands, doing his deeds. That's how we receive grace. Now you might, after two woes, be wondering what God is going to do, or you might be scared to know what God is going to do. But but Isaiah tells us, Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge, Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. God's going to bring judgment on the unfruitfulness of his people, on the bad fruit of his people. Those who are greedy for mansions are going to be homeless in exiles. Those who are overindulgent, who are self-indulgent and consuming, are going to be consumed by the mouth of Sheol. It's interesting the way that they get what seems to be due to them. The summary here is that man is humbled in verse 15, and each one is brought low. The eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. He's exalted in this same agricultural metaphor that the people will reap what they've sown he's exalted in justice that people are getting what they're due and the holy god is showing himself holy in righteousness but to those who are innocent there's a promise the lambs shall graze as in their pasture and the nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich round one done all right let's reload round two is coming four more woes Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let him come that we may know it. Isaiah is confronting cynicism here. and Let me show you it. In verse 19, this is really clear as these people are almost taunting the Lord to work, to act. This is what cynicism says, right? It says, if my sin is really wrong, then God, do something about it. If, if you're really real, God, would you just prove yourself to me? Or if you really want me to change, change me. 
This is what cynicism says. This is the bad fruit that it is because it puts God on trial when we are the ones who are really guilty. For many of you, this is going to hit home because we struggle to believe what God has done and what he's promising to do, don't we? It's easy for you to say, yeah, the promises of God are kind of out there. They work for the other people in my missional community. They work for the other people around this church, but not for my struggles, not for what I'm going through. His promises are not real. But cynicism won't help you there either. Verse 18 gives this picture of cords and cart ropes. And what cynicism does is it takes a a thin cord of deceit or falsehood and it, it grows it into this thick, bound cord that's a cart rope. The imagery is that of an oxen that we're like, that we're burdened in pulling our sin, our rotten fruit behind us through life. And we can't seem to get free of it because we're doubting God and what he can actually do for us. Cynicism is is a really deceptive and hard and rotten fruit. But the good news is that cynicism can be severed by the cross of Christ. Those of you this morning, that this is where you sit. This is often how you feel. Don't stiff arm the grace of God again this morning. Don't set him far off. He wants to come near. He wants his grace to break through. He wants you to see that the cross of Christ can sever you from cynicism in a way that gives you joy and childlike faith and the ability to receive grace so that you might extend it and give it freely to others around you. You don't have to be a cynical person. Grace can abound for you. Bad fruit number four, the reversal of truth. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is familiar to us as well. When we look at maybe our cultural landscape or our country or our world, we can say there's such reversal of truth. There's this, there's this corruption of what is good and right and true into what is evil. But I'm concerned also for us inwardly. Isaiah is concerned for both. He says that there's a reversal of light and darkness. That is what's out there that we can see external from us. And there's a perversion of what is perceptible to us that sweet, that bitter, what we can taste. There's a flipping of what is good and what is true in our own hearts and lives. What we don't see is that the laws of God, the truth of God, are incredibly gracious, that they're his love, his care, his protection for us, his compassion for us. We don't see that when we begin to soften the laws of God, we don't need grace anymore because we can measure up. We don't need grace anymore because... We have no need of it. The reversal of truth is opposed to grace. How often do you find yourself here trying to convince other people you're right? Trying to convince yourself that it's okay what you're doing? That's a familiar territory for me and for many of us, I think. Woe, number five. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. When's the last time you asked for advice? Just do a self-check here. When's the last time you talked to someone and said, hey, I need help here. I need your insight, your counsel here. Please help me. 
I, th- I think we have this idea that when we grow up, we don't really need advice. When we get older or we reach a certain stage, we don't need the advice or help of other people. We can be wise on our own. And maybe that's you have grandkids now and so you are wise. Or maybe that's you have kids now and you're wise. Or maybe that's you're married now and you're wise. Or you're in college now and you're wise. Whatever that stage, maybe you have a cell phone now and you're wise. Because your iPhone can look it up. Siri helps me. Anyway, we have this thing where we're wise in our own eyes. We want to be autonomous. That's what Isaiah is driving at here. He knows that we have a tendency to hum along with the undertone of autonomy, not knowing we're even singing the tune of self-reliance that we can make it on our own. He knows that if we are wise in our own eyes, we decide what's right and wrong, and no one else influences us. The problem is that grace is only received by the dependent, not the independent and the self-reliant. The problem is is that the Bible paints a completely different picture of our need. If you look in Hebrews, it says emphatically that we need other people's help every day. Not just like, hey, once a week or once a while. We need encouragement, exhortation. We need support. We need prayer. We need help every day because of the deceitfulness of our own hearts and our tendency towards unbelief. That's what God is calling us to. When we live a life of autonomy, we completely reject the grace of God's word, his spirit, and his people. Where is the lie of individualism? Where is the lie of autonomy present in your life? Jesus gives a different example, doesn't he? Isn't he the one who gave up his rightful autonomy to submit to the will and the wisdom of God the Father? Isn't he the one who went to the cross, that path that seemed odd, right? So that you and I might be freed from the stink fruit of autonomy. Woe number six. We're almost done. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. This is an interesting one because Isaiah returns to his earlier theme of self-indulgence and social injustice. But in an unexpected way, I think this is a woe against individualism. Watch this. Isaiah smashes together two worlds that we think are completely unrelated. He smashes together the world of self-indulgence and the world of social injustice and says, they're wed. You can't separate them. He puts them together because we want to separate them and say, what I do doesn't really affect other people. See, the truth of individualism is that you as an individual have value, worth, dignity because you're created in the image of God. And that's something beautiful. But the lie of individualism is that you only exist as an individual. That everything you do doesn't affect anyone else. What you do only matters to you and you exist alone. When we believe that lie, we can't see the ways in which our actions affect other people. Self-indulgence doesn't just affect self. Isaiah is saying, he's trying to get us to see that what we do affects the systems in our culture. It affects other people. It oppresses people sometimes. 
He wants us to pick our head up, heads up and see that individualism is, is opposed to grace. And the reason why I think it is, is because we don't belong to ourselves. Individualism says we're just for ourselves. You are yours. But the truth of God's word is that we don't belong to ourselves. We are his workmanship. We are his vineyard, even as Isaiah 5 says. Where is the lie of individualism producing bad fruit in your life? I told you all to buckle up. There's six clusters of bad fruit here. It doesn't seem good for the people of Israel. And if we're honest, it doesn't seem really good for us either. Bad fruit has come because God's people have abused grace, though he's abundantly poured it out on them. He's cultivated everything that needs to be cultivated that they might produce fruit, yet they don't. What bad fruit do you see in your life? For some of you, God's giving the grace of conviction right now here this morning. As Isaiah is being bold and telling you of these things. The question we have to answer is how is God going to respond to this bad fruit? What is he going to do? God responds to bad fruit in two ways. We've already gotten a glimpse of one of them, judgment. But the other way in which God responds to bad fruit, shockingly, is more grace. Let's read about the judgment. In verse 24, Isaiah continues, Therefore, as tongue as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a a signal for the nations far away. He will whistle for them, and from the ends of the earth they come. Behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles. None sleeps, slumbers, or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, their bows are bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, as young lions as they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Judgment comes on unfruitfulness, because God is surprised by their sin. He comes quickly, he comes powerfully, he comes viciously, but really he, become, he comes in a fitting way for their sin. He's giving them the consequences that they deserve for their sin. For unfruitfulness, God causes them to reap what they've sown. But more grace is given also for unfruitfulness. More grace is given to those who produce rotten fruit. Grace that might melt a heart. Grace that might change a life. Grace that might work renewal and produce true fruit. 
The good news of the gospel is that God is not defeated by unfruitfulness. If you step back and look at that judgment passage, what do you see? God's not out of control wondering what he's going to do and how he can fix this. He whistles and the most powerful nation of the world runs to his feet like a dog panting and asking what to do next. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. God's woes are better than the devil's welcomes. His woes are even a sign of grace to us this morning that we might be awakened and see. Isaiah wants us to know that God expects fruitfulness. But he knows that throughout all of history, his people have consistently lacked fruit. And so he's doing something very strategic here with his people in Israel something that we can see now looking back on them. What he's doing is he's uprooting his vineyard that he might plant a true vine. He's uprooting his people, sending them into exile that he might plant a true Israel who is the vine in the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. He's clearing a chosen hill, a fertile hill, and he's going to place the cross on it that he might correct, connect us to the true vine. Jesus is the one who was removed from the presence of the Trinity. Jesus is the one who was trampled as he went to the cross. Jesus is the one who, on his death, the whole land was filled with darkness. He is the one who stands to take the place of our poor fruit, to take the judgment for us if we would receive him. Jesus is the true vine. Look at, Isaiah, or look at John chapter 15 with me. This is so clear and so amazing how the Old Testament is commenting on the New Testament. Jesus says in his last conversation with his disciples, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus is repeating Isaiah here. Jesus is confirming everything that Isaiah said, that grace should lead to fruitfulness. Jesus is going even one step further and saying that, I know that you can't produce fruit on your own. I know that your tendency is to produce bad fruit. Look at, look at his promise here in verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the comfort of grace again. God coming to us and saying, I know you cannot produce this fruit that I expect. I know that you cannot deliver, but Jesus can. And he's saying, if you will believe in the Lord Jesus, if you will connect yourself to him, he will produce his fruit through you. God's surprised by sin. His grace and his goodness are so good that he expects fruitfulness from us. It's the natural outworking of his character and his presence in our lives. We should be growing in moral fruitfulness. Our character is deepening and developing. We should be growing in missional fruitfulness that the kingdom is expanding around us. Disciples are being made. That's the kind of thing that we should experience and expect because it's what God expects. Jesus is stating that fruit proves discipleship. There's no such thing as an unfruitful Christian. So for some of you this morning that look over a long period in your life and see no fruit, 
I think Isaiah's asking you to do some self-examination and ask, am I truly connected to the vine? Am I truly converted? Do I really know Christ? If your response to bad fruit is something other than repentance and faith, if if your tendency is towards defensiveness, if your tendency is to explain away an excuse, if you tend toward despair rather than casting your hope on Christ alone and his grace, he wants you to ask some questions. I think the biggest reason that God wants us to consider his call to fruitfulness this morning is because he's given us far more reason to be fruitful than we could have ever asked for. He's given us far more reason than we could have ever hoped. He's given us far more resources than we could have ever expected. He's given us the Holy Spirit to live and dwell inside us. He said, I know that you can't produce the fruit on your own, but I'm going to place my own spirit in you that it might dwell in you producing the fruit of righteousness. The Holy Spirit, that power that raised Jesus from the dead, that that one who produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. The Holy Spirit lives in the disciples who love and worship Jesus, who know him, who are connected to the vine. The Holy Spirit wants to live in you and produce the fruit of the kingdom. The Holy Spirit wants to allow you to be fruitful that you might bring glory to God. This is what Jesus is pointing towards, right? In verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fruitfulness is after the glory of God. The Holy Spirit can change us, not to be a greedy people, but to be a generous people. The Holy Spirit has power to transform us that we might not regard what we could consume, but regard the deeds and the works of the Lord. The Holy Spirit can change us so that our cynicism can be turned into childlike faith. The Holy Spirit is incredibly powerful if we would receive him in the name of Jesus so that he might produce fruitfulness in us. Cormdeo. Let's not abuse the grace of God. He's poured out his grace abundantly for us. Grace should lead to fruitfulness. And God's provided a way for that to be true. Let's praise God and pray this morning. Father, thank you for the strength of this text. Thank you for the boldness of Isaiah. Thank you for his ability to speak into the lives of the people of Israel and for Isaiah by the Holy Spirit now even to speak into our lives, cautioning us against the things that rob us of grace, that are opposed to grace and abuse grace. Lord, I pray that the tone this morning, although shocking, would lead us to repentance and faith. We'd see that your kindness is present and appealing to us that we might change and grow in fruitfulness. And I pray that we would see that you provided all things we need to be fruitful in the cross of Christ, his grace, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.